Good morning. I just heard y'all sing. You're louder than that. Good morning. Yeah, I got to sit with all y'all this morning. That was kind of fun. Uh, please turn your Bibles to John chapter 5. Um, in case we have not met yet, my name is Tyler Clements. And uh, I'm the youth director and director of music here at Grace. Um, our pastor, George Boomer, is um, out of town this week with his family, spending time uh, over Thanksgiving break. And so he will be back next Sunday for our first Sunday in Advent. If that just blew your mind, exactly. We're already one week away from Advent, which is, which is exciting. So we're continuing our sermon series this morning in the book of John, we're in chapter five, and so hopefully you've been able to turn there. And so with the word before us, let's uh, go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, please help us this morning. Help us to hear your word and understand it truly, and that in understanding we may believe it, and in believing we may follow you in all faithfulness and obedience seeking your honor and your glory in everything that we do. So please help us, please heal us, please enable us to trust in you, Lord Jesus. And it's in your powerful name we pray, amen. So John 5, I'm gonna read the first uh, 18 verses of this chapter this morning. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now they're in Jerusalem by the sheep gate uh, sorry, now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more, and nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And our response to the word together, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So I'm always a bit puzzled by the questions that Jesus asks people, are you? Uh, Matthew 20, he passed by two blind men on the road and, and he asked them, what do you want me to do for you? Seems rather obvious probably. In Mark 10, he encountered another blind man, asked them the same question, what do you want me to do for you? I mean, it seems obvious. And in today's passage, 
Jesus asks this man, do you want to be healed? I mean, does that not strike you when we were through that? This man had been an invalid for 38 years, and Jesus still asks him this question. And so as we look at this story today, Jesus healing this man by the pool, I think one of the things we'll see is that everything Jesus does has a purpose. There's a reason behind every one of his actions. Now, this story is actually rather close to my heart, I have to say. It's pretty providential that we've come to this point in, our, uh, in the Gospel of John, and it's my turn to preach. Uh, and the reason it's providential is because, as some of you may know, or some of you may not know, actually, that in my previous life, um, before coming on staff at Grace in 2005, I played in a Christian acoustic rock band. Uh, that's right, rock and roll. And... Uh, We got our start while we were students here at the University of Kansas, uh, started a weekly worship service on campus at KU, uh, and things kept progressing for us, and uh, we decided to make the band thing more official, you know, make it a a career. I should put that in air quotes. Um, But we were faced with that difficult decision that every band has to come up against, right? What do you name the band? Now, good luck with that. Like, that's not an easy task. I don't know if you've ever tried to name, like start a band and figure out a name, but we had a lot of ideas. We kept rolling around, some things were thrown out there, but one that kept coming to the surface uh, was a band inspired by this text called The Pool Boys. And so we were like, let's call ourselves The Pool Boys. And some of you are like, that's where that came from? (laughs) You've maybe known that about my past? Well, there you go. I'm glad we cleared it up. So what we would do is we tell that story in brief at our concerts. We talk about this man who is invalid, who is lying by this pool, and how Jesus came by and healed him, how he saves us, and how he tells us to get up and and walk and tell others about this great love that Jesus has. Now, we were well aware that there were bands out there called the Beach Boys and the News Boys and the Backstreet Boys, right? So, but to be clear, we were not a boy band, all right? also clear that up. That was not our MO. Choreography was not our thing. Uh, But here's what we did love to do. We love to write songs about our faith in Jesus, and we love to lead worship. Uh, We loved traveling the country, sharing the love of Christ through our music and through building relationships with people. And so this morning, I'm excited to share with you about uh, this story of the man by the pool, and I pray that God would use this to bring us great hope and to bring us encouragement in the gospel. Because the truth is, and we all know this, right, we need encouragement for our lives because we're helpless. We are actually hopeless people without the word and work of God in our lives. I mean, our deepest need that we have, that you and I share, is to know sins forgiven, right? To have hearts that are changed, but that can only come from the work of God by his spirit. You are unable to fix your deepest need. Did you know that? You can't fix yourself. Now you have the power and will to act, yes, but your deepest need can only be met by Jesus. And so here's the good news. Jesus is still at work today. He has the power to change lives in his timing, in his way, and therefore we must trust in him as we walk by faith. In this event in the life of Christ by the pool of Bethesda, it's the third of seven signs in this book of, in this gospel of John. The first, as um, we've read, being the miracle at Cana where Jesus turned the water into wine. 
The second, last week, as Mayo preached about the healing of the official son from 16 miles away. And these signs have a purpose. John knows exactly what he's doing as he's writing these words inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the purpose is that you and I would believe, that we would actually believe this. So I suppose I should probably pause and just kind of give a little warning, right, to this sermon and say, before we dig too much deeper, like, you might actually come to believe this. I'm not so uninformed as to think that there aren't some here this morning who don't, and who are maybe here because you're curious. You're wondering what Christianity is all about. Or maybe you're here just because you know that's what you're supposed to do on Sunday mornings, right? You're supposed to go to church. That's, that's what you're supposed to do. So watch out. You may actually find that your heart will be changed and that you will believe to the point where it will actually alter your life. And then for others who perhaps already believe, watch out as well for you because you may find yourself believing even more and finding your faith strengthened by reading these words from the book of John because this is a living, powerful word we have before us. As John said later in the book in chapter 20, he gives us this purpose that I've spoken to. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the result of hearing this word is belief and life. And so what happened on that feast day in Jerusalem in John 5? Well, I want to break up our story into kind of three sections or scenes, if you will, or maybe acts, right? Um, the three parties involved, you've got Jesus, You've got the invalid man, or the pool boy, if you will, and then the Jews, or in, in this uh, setting, or in this context, as if you have footnotes in your Bible, when the Jews is referred to, it's talking about the Jewish leaders, the Jewish religious leaders. So those are the three parties, Jesus, the invalid, and the Jewish leaders. And so we see in Act 1, Jesus' interaction with the invalid man. Act 2, we'll see the, man, the man's interaction with the Jewish leaders, and then in Act 3, we see all three parties chat about what in the world just happened. <laughs> so I think what we'll find is in every moment of this story, Jesus is fully in control of every detail and every timing in his way. And it was, as a result, we'll not only see a man who is miraculously healed, but we see the first instance of hostility towards Jesus. There are some who don't like what he's doing and, and what he's claiming. And this should come as no surprise, for John said it would happen. In John 1, 11, we've already read that he, Jesus, came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And so this miracle aroused a response of anger and opposition against Jesus, rather than praise and gratitude, as we see. And so taking Act 1 in view, we begin with John placing us in a very specific geographical location in Jerusalem. I'll take this kind of section by section, or as I mentioned, three acts here. So act one, after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now remember, previous to this, Jesus is in the region of, of Galilee and Cana. And he went up to Jerusalem 
which is about 67 miles south of Cana, but going up is in relation to elevation, as Jerusalem was higher in elevation. And we see there's a pool by a sheep gate. The pool is called Bethesda, which in Hebrew means house of mercy, appropriately named. At this pool, there were a multitude of blind, lame, and paralyzed people. And so get this picture for a second. Think about this. Multitudes of needy people sitting alongside this pool. Imagine the sight, what it looked like of people with shriveled limbs and malformed bodies, or even the smell of people who are not probably not able to take care of themselves, or even the sounds of people lying there in pain, suffering, what that might have sounded like. It's just like a field hospital, probably in a time of war, right? It's not a pretty picture. And so we read on in verse 4. Uh, verse 4. All right, you might be like, wait, what's, where'd verse 4 go? Did you notice that when we read through it? There's no verse 4 there. Makes me go, all right, what's, was the Bible just not done loading? Like, do we need to reboot this thing? Like, what, what's, what's wrong with this? And there, let me assure you, there's nothing wrong with the fact that there's no verse 4 in, in our ESV text. So there's a long explanation, but I'll just give you the short one because I'm not an expert on textual criticism. So in efforts to remain as true to the original text as possible, uh, in our ESV Bible, for example, the Bible translators decided to push those verses that were not in the original text down to footnotes. And there's actually about 18 of them in the New Testament. So don't freak out when you come to a passage and you realize the numbering gets off and there's a verse skipped. Your Bible's not an error. Um, it's not a misprint. There's nothing malicious happening here. It's just Bible translators desiring to keep the text of the scripture as closest to the original as possible. So uh, this actual version of my Bible doesn't have the footnote, but um, most ESV Bibles do have it footnoted, verse 4. So I'll read it in context of 3 through 5. Verse 3, And these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So in this instance, the, story, or the footnote is helpful, right, to get a little more context of the story. And we and we see that as, as, as the, you could say, legend has it or whatnot, the angel of the Lord would stir up the waters of the pool, and whomever would be first would be healed. Now, whether this actually happened or if it was just more of a rumor or the wind blew or this is the only time that we read of this in the scripture, regardless, many desperate souls waited by the edge of the pool, longing for healing, and in particular, this man for 38 years. And that in itself should make us feel a deep, deep hatred for sin and its effects when we hear of someone who has suffered this long for 38 years, literally feet away from a Bethesda cure. Take a second to think about 38 years. That's a long time. I mean, Mayo just celebrated his 37th birthday, and he's old, right? Now think of 38 years. Imagine suffering then for that amount of time. The man mostly, you know, unable, likely unable to walk, limited in his movements because he has stated like he can't get in before other people are getting in the pool. They beat him to it. 
And I think, man, the kind of suffering I've endured in my lifetime is nothing compared to this. You know, I get a cold for a week and I'm frustrated, you know, or even months of dealing with Achilles tendonitis in my 40s. Man, you know, that's nowhere near the amount of suffering 38 years. I think of my poor mother who has to have surgery on her eye this week, and she's got to, for three days after surgery, she's going to have to keep her head down for 45 minutes every, uh, on every hour, and then she gets to lift up her head up for 15 minutes. But she's got to do this for three days, right? And all the eye doctors out there are like, yeah, I can tell you exactly why that is, right? But, like, that's, that's struggle. That's going to be a, a, a difficult three days, not to mention, not to mention, the long-term suffering of some of you fighting cancer week in and week out. Or my guy, Von Heck, a high school student in our church, what a rock star, who for over two years, maybe even more, has been suffering with this painful condition that we pray for week in and week out. God did not create man to be full of aches and pain and sickness. This is the fruit of the fall. And it's okay to be angry at it. It's okay to be frustrated with it. But as I look at all of these situations, we can proclaim there's hope that this is not the end of the story. So as we continue on in this first act, verse 6 through 7, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. So here's that question, right? Jesus asks, do you want to be healed? Another way you could translate is, do you want to be whole? Do you want to be made whole? And what was his response? Yes. Please, sir. No. That was not his response. This question revealed his heart, didn't it? Which seemed to be full of bitterness and frustration what does he say? I have no one to put me in the pool. When I'm going, I try to go. Someone keeps stepping in front of me. I'm helpless. It's his fault. It's that guy's fault. It's that girl's fault. I'm in this condition, right? They keep going in front of me. Do you hear that bitterness, that blame towards the unkindness of human nature? Then that's what his problem is? The man was fixated on this pool being the solution to his problems and anyone that got in the way was just fuel for bitterness and frustration. And I can identify. How often do we do, we do this? Probably too much, I'm guessing. Rather than going to the one who can relieve our burdens, we place blame on others and bitterness just begins to grow. And here's why. This is what happens. This is what happens when we have misplaced hope. When we have misplaced hope. When we look to other substitute healers, other things that will help us, that will actually only let us down and leave us in our sickly condition. You might look to relationships. Be like, if I could only have this kind of relationship, then I'll be, I'll be made whole again. If I could only have this promotion at work, but that guy keeps going in ahead of me, right? sounds familiar, then I'll be made whole. If I can have that position or that career, we think of money, right? Man, if only I could have this much more money, I'd be set. I'd be good. I wouldn't have as many problems. Or we'll go to substances, things that will help maybe 
help us forget about the bitterness like alcohol or drugs or anything that kind of creates a form of escape so that even for a short amount of time, we can have relief from this bitterness and maybe feel a little shred of wholeness. But these are all fake pools. They're all fake. And we run to them rather than the only one who can make us whole. Because there is only one true healer. There is only one with power enough to bring redemption. And this one's power is limitless. It's not restrained to a particular moment in time when water is stirred or limited to only the first person in. This healer's power is accessible at all times and limitless in his ability to heal. And Jesus was about to reveal this to the man. Verse 8, as we see the miracle happen, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. And here we see not only the mercy and compassion of Jesus to enter into this situation by this pool, but we see his power. We see his power to speak a word in 38 years completely done away with of sickness. Only the God who created muscles and bones and tendons and nerves, only the God who can create those things can do such a miraculous, restorative, redemptive act as this. At once he was healed. And he did what Jesus told him, right? He picked up his, his, it says his bed, but it was more a mat that you could kind of roll up and carry with you. He picked up his mat uh, and he walked. Can you imagine the joy of this man? Can you imagine the feelings of emotion? Just the the overwhelmed feeling he had? But John does, does not give us much description of his response, which I think is interesting. And so act one comes to a close. So now act two, here we see the man as he interacts with the Jewish leaders. Um, The end of verse nine, I'll pick up there. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said, uh, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? I'll pause there just to ask this question, like, what's the big deal about carrying his mat on the Sabbath? Well, it was a violation in their eyes of the Sabbath. It was an offense against the fourth commandment. I mean, if you go back to Exodus 20, in the giving of the Ten Commandments, you read this. Uh, Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner that's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." But it doesn't say anything in there about carrying anything around being an offense. Now you see what we have here is a good example of Jewish leaders and Pharisees adding things to the law of God, even superimposing hair-splitting distinctions on Sabbath regulations. And this grew into the worst form of legalism. But in the life of Jesus, what he shows us is that it is lawful on the Sabbath to do good. 
He seemed to ignore this mass of scribal regulations and thus inevitably came into conflict then with the authorities. So they approached the man, seeing him an obvious violation of the law and seemed quick to want to bring down the full force of the law upon him. In that interaction, they tell him, hey, you can't take up your mat on the Sabbath. That's, that's a work. And he responds, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Now, it's interesting that instead of being shocked at this man's healing, they want to find the one who told him to carry his mat and, and thus to break the law, completely overlooking the fact that this man had just had a miraculous event occur in his life. So, okay, let's, let's maybe give the Jewish leaders the benefit of doubt for a few seconds. Maybe they didn't know that Jesus had just healed him. Maybe they had never talked to this man or never seen him before. So let's, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. All they saw maybe was this man carrying his mat, and so they wanted to uphold the standards of God's law. God's law, so they thrown, they're throwing the flag, right? Sorry, that's a foul. You cannot do that. But rather, what they were so focused on was trying to, keep, trying to find fault in people rather than hearing a story or asking, why are you carrying your mat? And I believe we're guilty doing the same thing. I believe we do the same thing. We see people from the outside and we make judgments or assumptions uh, having no idea, perhaps, what people have been through or what has just happened to them. I thought of an example, like when I talk with our volunteer youth leaders or even our, our summer staff interns, we will have conversations about when we, when we hang out with students in our youth group, like when they show up on Wednesday nights, we, we should be aware that what we see on the outside is probably not what's going on in the inside. That who knows what has just happened to them that day at school? Who knows what is happening to them in their family? And whatever presenting issue or thing we might see on the outside might not be really what the story is. And to be compassionate and to ask questions, I think that's probably good not just for youth leaders, but for all of us, right? As we think of each other's lives and we see each other, to be less quick to judge we say, what, what, are they, what are they doing? What? We have no idea, right, what's going on in people's lives. I mean, unless we ask, unless we pry, unless we have a heart of mercy and compassion. And in this case, the Jewish leaders, they were trying to find the one who told this man to transgress the law and bring him to justice. And you think Jesus didn't know this would happen? So in verse 12, they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Verse 13, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Now, that's a fascinating piece of information we get at this point in the story, isn't it? The man who was healed had no idea it was Jesus. He was clueless to his identity. And, and the other interesting thing I find is that somehow Jesus slips away in the crowd, right? As he's known to do in gospel stories. Like there's a purpose in everything Jesus does, and that brings us to the end of Act 2. So the pool boy has been healed. The Jewish leaders are upset, not because this man was healed, but because someone's carrying their mat on the Sabbath, and they want to know who to blame. So in Act 3, here we get the three parties talking about what's happened in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him, the, the man who was by the pool, in the temple, and he said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. 
And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. So Jesus finds the man in the temple, and he says something curious. He tells him, see you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now this comment seems to imply that it was because of the man's sin that he got into that predicament of 38 years of being an invalid in the first place. But not to get too far ahead of ourselves here in John, when you get to John 9, we will see Jesus healing a man born blind. And he says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents that he was blind, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, that sort of thinking, sin as karma, right? I do something bad, and so then I get punished for it, is not the gospel. We do know that sin produces harmful effects. More than harmful, sin is destructive. It has consequences. It destroys. But we also know this, that for the believer, sin has been paid for on the cross. And we're no longer condemned. It's not a license to sin more. It's actually a motivation to sin less. And in his statement to the man, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you, I, I believe it's a reflection of the status of what Jesus knows of this man's heart. Now, on, only the Lord knows the condition of a person's heart, but I don't believe the man by the pool is saved. There seems to be no evidence of faith in this man, only physical healing. So when Jesus tells him, no longer continue in sin, he's probably referring to his unregenerate state. Like there's something worse in store for him with regards to eternal punishment for those who don't believe in Christ compared to having a disease for whatever amount of time in this life. It's a sobering interaction, isn't it? Jesus appeals to this man's healing as kind of a wake-up call to this greater need he has for the redemption of his own heart. And what was the man's reaction to these words? Was he repentant? Does there seem to be even a glimmer of faith? Not so much. Because in verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. So he goes to the Jewish leaders and plays tattletale, essentially, right? He's still trying to defend himself, right? Now he knows who it is. Jesus, that's the guy who told me to pick up my mat and walk. It's his fault, not mine. And again, these two parties, the, the man by the pool and the Jewish leaders, I think they're missing the point. Jesus, God in flesh, had come to earth, displayed healing, redemptive power over sickness and death, and they're missing it. They're caught up in placing blame and preserving their own self-righteousness. And Jesus is determined to rescue people from such legalistic enslavement. You can find this in other gospels, like Matthew 12, Pharisees get mad at the disciples for eating grain on the Sabbath while they were walking through the fields. Jesus said he desires mercy, not sacrifice, because the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And this just shows that people are far more important than rules, and showing mercy is a far higher obligation for a follower of Christ. Now, sidebar, it's a horrible thing to have a religion of rules if your heart is far from Jesus. And that's why the Christianity, it's so freeing. It's so refreshing, this faith that we hold so dear, because our obedience to Christ is because we have hearts that are changed. We desire to please Him. We desire to obey Him. We don't obey to earn His favor. That's 
called a transactional relationship, right? And with Jesus, it's all grace. It's all grace, this never-ending source of love, of forgiveness, of acceptance. And so John tells us the reason for the Jewish leader's disdain for Jesus is because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. That's not all. John gives us another reason why they're upset. In verse 18, they wanted to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Now, people broke Sabbath laws all the time, I assume, but calling yourself equal with God is utter blasphemy unless it's true. And this miraculous event by the pool of Bethesda was another sign of this divinity of Christ. For Really, who can heal a sick person by simply saying, get up, pick up your mat, and walk, but God in flesh, Jesus? This one who meets us, meets people in their deepest, darkest points of despair, and he heals. He came to the broken. He came to the sick. He came to the needy. He did not shy away from that pool, but he walked right in amongst those people. Mark 2, 17, those, Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so I ask you today, church, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made whole? Do you want that, really? Then admit you're broken. Admit you're needy, that you're a helpless sinner amongst a multitude of helpless sinners. Now, we all have our pools of misplaced hope, but we need to look to Jesus because he is the truer and better pool of Bethesda. His redemptive power is not limited in any way, and as he reminded us in verse 17, he is working. See, the work of Jesus was to stoop down to the lowest of lows as he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross for sinners like you and I. We read about it in our profession of faith this morning from Philippians 2, humbling himself. I'm thankful. I'm thankful. We have a healer who knows the brokenness of human experience. Not only can he relate, but he knows how to help. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, the life we lead this side of eternity is and will be fraught with difficulty, suffering, brokenness. For some, it may be a 38-year bout of suffering, and for others, something different. Well, one thing I love about the scriptures is that it doesn't skirt around telling us the honest truth about what life will be like for the believer in Jesus. He said in John 16, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away and our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. See, we have this hope that as quickly as that man was healed by the pool, 
at once, it says, there is a day coming when in, the, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. This is our future. The story is also a picture for us of this future redemption we have, not just of our, our bodies, but our whole person when Christ returns and all will be made right again. There will be no more suffering, no more tears, no more sickness. Cancer will be no more. Injustice, no more. Hospitals will go out of business. Police departments, you can just, we don't need police departments anymore. Locksmiths, counselors, insurance agencies. I was trying to think of all the careers that most, a lot of you probably have. Like the new heavens, new earth. I don't know. I don't know where we're going to get our funny commercials, but it doesn't matter, right? If all the insurance companies go away. Um, what's amazing, though, is that we be so much more glorious than we can actually try and think up and comprehend in our minds. Until then, though, Jesus told the man, get up. He said, take up your mat and walk. And then we read later in the scriptures, the Apostle Paul, he tells us how to walk. He says, I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Verse 15 of chapter 5 in Ephesians, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So our days may be filled with suffering, but we have one who identifies with us in our suffering and has made us whole. So if you're still clinging to pools of misplaced hope or blaming others for your condition, I would urge you this morning to look at the Savior Jesus who seeks you out and finds you amongst the suffering and the sick and offers to you today his healing and his wholeness. Cast your burdens, your struggles, cast your sorrows upon him and he will give you the rest, the help, and the wholeness that you're longing for. As Isaiah 53 says, for he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And by his wounds, we are healed. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, thank you for being willing to mingle amongst the blind amongst the lame, amongst the paralyzed, that though you are perfect, you didn't avoid imperfect people, but you entered into their situations, you brought redemption, and Lord, that is us. We know ourselves to be needy, to be helpless, and so we invite you to have your way with us. Let your will be done in our own lives, please. For those who are suffering, please bring relief and bring the glory and honor to your name through it. We marvel at your power to simply speak a word and healing happens. Thank you for taking upon yourself our hurts, our pains, and our sins so that we would know what real healing, what real forgiveness is. And so we pray now, Father, that our lives would be marked with a similar compassion towards others that you've shown us. That out of gratitude for what we have seen and what we know in our own lives, we would see the needs of others and that we would act. So we pray, Lord God, especially this week, we look ahead to celebrating Thanksgiving that you would stir up in our hearts gratitude, thankfulness for all you've done for us in Christ. 
in his living, in his dying, and in his rising again. Please empower us, Lord, to walk in love as Christ has loved us. And we pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.